Christine. You, welcome back to the show. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Now, you have been on the show before. Back in, back in late February, you were on episode 513, where we, I shouldn't say we, where you specifically, and I just hopped in the sidecar for a little trip where you took us around four really interesting articles about um, research articles about sports science. That was just a lot of fun and people really gained, um, you know, not only a lot of education from that, but it was pretty entertaining as well. So, but today you are back. Now, we, when we did the episode, we actually teased that you'd be back talking about your book, but it's out now and it's doing really well. So up to speed, the groundbreaking science of women athletes. First of all, congratulations on getting this out in the world and I'm seeing it everywhere. Thank you so much. It feels really good to have it finally out in the world, like not just living in my brain in on my computer. I can show my kids and be like, see, I was actually working on something. I wasn't just hiding from you for like two years. All right. So I guess the most important question is, how are you going to hide from them now, now that your book is out in the world? This is the problem because my younger son is like, he's like, so you can, you can play with me now all the time, right? Like we're just going to play Legos all summer. I'm like, Maybe a little bit, but not all summer. <laughs> That's funny. I'm literally surrounded by Legos. Like people, I have a little video screen behind me. That is my actual basement. But like everywhere else, there's Legos. So I, I, I get that completely. It's funny. I was like, I was, you know, finishing up like stuff this morning, getting ready for this podcast. My son's like, "All right, I need all of your old baseball cards." It's like, <laughs> what? Why? Because I like them. It's like this is not the time. And you're like sitting there like with the work from home with school balance. This is not the point of this podcast, but it it is a real thing, though. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this is going to be a lot of fun. All right. I like to ask anytime I have an author on the show, I guess the genesis of um, I guess the point where this became more than simply a you know series of articles, a potential feature story and, you know, elevate the elevated itself to. All right. This is a potential book for you. Yeah, I mean, so I have been reporting on kind of sports science and this intersection with women athletes for a while. And I think there was actually two pieces of it, two pieces of it. One was that I was getting a little frustrated because I felt like I kept reading and writing stories about things like the female athlete triad or body image issues or how women have more ACL tears than men. And it would be like, okay, these articles would come out. And then inevitably it would like cycle back around, right? Like another article like would come up and be like, oh my God, we need to pay attention to like bone health and female athlete triad. And then it would go away and it just like kept repeating itself. And it's like, felt like we weren't actually getting anywhere, right? Like we weren't actually moving forward. And so part of it was I was really interested in understanding a why we weren't moving forward, but also you know, in the back of my head, I felt like there had to be some sort of thread that was connecting these different issues, right? Like that was connecting these issues that were seemed to be disproportionately affecting women um, in sports. Um, So that was a big piece of it, trying to understand those underlying issues and what kind of tied everything together. And I felt like there wasn't really one place or one resource where we got that information to, right? So you'd have like, the articles in the newspapers and then you'd have like scientific journals which like no one is reading <laughs> except for like dorks we're gonna like get me. to that for sure. <laughs> but um you know so it, i wanted to kind of bring you know things together under one roof and then the other part of it was you know even further you know back than that probably like around 
I want to say like 2013 or so, it was really the first time that I'd actually heard the phrase female athlete triad and really understood the connection between nutrition and hormonal health and bone health. And it kind of blew my mind that as someone who, you know, was pre-med in college and had taken a lot of science classes and was really interested in this topic, you know, not only like sports and fitness and science, it was really shocking to me that I didn't know this information beforehand, right? Like the fact that your bone, you know, peak bone building period is like in adolescence. I'm like, well, that would have been helpful to know (laughs) when I was younger. So it was kind of these confluence of things of, you know, realizing that we just didn't know that much about female physiology. And the fact that like, as someone who is reporting on this stuff and is like interacting with this stuff pretty regularly, the fact that I also had very little knowledge about this, um, I realized I'm like, that means like lots of people don't know, right? Um, and so just really wanted to get more information out there for folks. Yeah, absolutely. And, and with you have like, you bring up many points in this book, and we've talked about this before. And again, this is this has been your beat, so to speak, for a while now. I, I just don't know, like the chicken and egg version of like how some of this stuff even happens, right? Like you have like the, the studies that are happening at colleges and maybe some private places as well. But like, again, those take a long time, not only to mm-hmm. happen, but then to be published. But like, and then you have like the reporting on them and for, and also the, the scientific journals, which are great, but you know, if one gets like 20 readers, if one gets like 20 clicks, you're like, wow, this is great. You know, like, it's like, it, it, it really is a different um, audience for mm-hmm. those than like, say your book. All right. So when it comes to not only the production of the scientific materials and the studies um, that are needed here, and then to the dissemination of those, and then also the, from the dissemination piece to like digesting them and putting them mm-hmm. into practice, and then figuring out like, all right, well, what's the genesis of all of this? I feel like it, it's it's such a hard thing to detangle for someone who isn't intimately involved with this process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because it's it's so like how the sausage is made, right? Like there's so much that goes into it. And, you know, as I think consumers of this, right, as someone who's not in the scientific field or, you know, actually doing the research, we don't have a lot of insight or transparency into that whole process, right? Like what it takes, what it entails, how, like you said, how long it actually takes. All we see are these like headlines, you know, that say, don't eat eggs, eat eggs, <laughs> drink red wine. Right. Is, is chocolate eat... healthy or not? Exactly. You know, like... it depends. depends what 36 hours you're listening. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so I think it makes it really hard to understand a lot of the nuance behind what it actually takes, right, to to do these studies, but also to build up the scientific evidence base so that you can draw more general conclusions, right, that would, you know, we could apply to like you or me, right? Um, and it's actually, I was at the, I was up in Boston last week for the Female Athlete Conference, and it's essentially all like the who's who of anyone who is studying female athlete health. And Every, like one of the points that everyone kind of kept coming back to was this issue of translation, right? Like how do we actually translate what we find in the lab to a general audience? And, you know, part and parcel with that is like, how do you counter all the noise and 
like baloney that's on like TikTok and Instagram and, you know, all these other platforms, it's really hard to get that message across. Enter Christine Yu. I shouldn't say enter. You've been here the whole time, but you know, you're just sitting there like, that's me. I, that's what I do. But you know, again, that's a difficult challenge, right? So all of a sudden it's like, all right, we want to get this out to a broader audience so that people can understand it. You're sitting there, you're writing the book on it. You're going through all of this stuff. Did you feel in the writing process a weight of responsibility about like making sure that you're telling the right story here? Because again, your your job in this book that you not your job, it was your your idea, but like was to put context behind this to find the reasons why females are so often not either not included at all or underrepresented in so many studies, and even the studies that are done it doesn't get disseminated to people that need to hear it or for people who do hear it, they're not acting on it. Right. So you have to put context to all of this stuff and try to get to the motivations and the different factors. Talk to me about the weight of responsibility there as someone who's diving into those waters. Yeah. I mean, it was a huge weight on me and something that, you know, I was really concerned about going into this because the whole premise of the book really is like, I wanted it to be grounded in science, right? The whole point is to, you know, kind of debunk some of these myths and misconceptions out there and really try to put a more neutral frame on what we do know, what we don't know, what we still need to know, right? Um, and that's a lot, right? It's like, like I, I mean, I say I have a science background, but I also, I've never really worked in a research lab. Like I don't, I'm not that intimately familiar with all this stuff. So I felt like, you know, th- my biggest fear was that I was going to get this wrong, I was going to misrepresent the science and the work of all of these amazing people. Um, I, it freaked me out, frankly. Like I, it, I'm a over researcher by nature, anyways. But like, I seriously went overboard with this in the number of articles. Like, I kept reading articles to try to make sure that I was getting the picture right, making sure, almost like triangulating right to um, what all of this means. I interviewed a bajillion, I feel like a bajillion people to, again, try to understand the context and the challenges of this to make sure that I was, you know, uh, writing about it in the right way. Um, My poor fact checker and yeah, and I, you know, paid for a fact checker out of my own pocket to make sure that I was, um, again, not totally off base with what I was, what I was writing. Um, she thought I was bananas because literally it was in my manuscript. It was almost like every other word had some sort of footnote to it <laughs> to like, be like, this is what I'm pr- like, this is where I got my information. Um, again, cause like it, it felt very important to me, especially I feel like in this day and age where there is so much mis- misinformation and misunderstanding about science and science literacy, you know, as we've seen is a challenge for a lot of people. Um, so yeah, it was it was hard. Right. And I think the idea of science is like you know, again, there's many ideas of it, but the idea of like trying to take complex things, get some get some sort of understanding on it, and then the best case scenario, being able to put like legit black and white answers on on problems. However, good luck doing that with people. Right? Like good luck. Right. So again, this kind of gets the heart of it. Oftentimes, in, in in some people's effort, even like say you took the best case scenario, we talked about this in our previous episode. Like, so you had like the, the most thoughtful researchers in the world who are trying to do their due diligence. Sometimes in some of their studies, it can be easier to study men than women just from mm-hmm. a just from a confounding fact confounding factors perspective. But as we talked about last time, like 
those factors are not something to be discarded. They are literally the point of this. We need to figure those things out. And those are, those are just as important, if not sometimes more important than, than other parts. So like, you know, including, if not centering a lot of these studies on women is so important. So as you're going through this and you're really trying to figure out like, all right, how do I like present this as like, not only what the state of things now, but what they could be, what were some of the surprises that came to, that came to head for you as someone who like, obviously went into this with your eyes wide open, but you at many points in this book shared your disbelief at certain things. You're like, wow, I, I thought I knew what was going on, but then on further reflection, wow, this was even more exacerbated than I thought. Yeah. I mean, I think we might've talked about this before, but I think one of the bigger pieces for it, you know, for me was really understanding almost the historical context, right? In which both sports and the field of sports science um, emerged from, right? And kind of what the priorities were, you know, who was in charge and making these decisions, the people that they were studying, so that, you know, really understanding kind of the systemic um, foundation that was laid, right? That then has led to a lot of this, you know, oversight and kind of blind spots, right? In the current science. Um, that was... I didn't, I don't know why, but like, I didn't really think that the history piece of it would be so interesting to me, but it was fascinating just understand, talking to folks and really understanding some, you know, more of that history around a lot of that. I think the other piece of it is that the fact that we're in 2023 and a lot of these myths and misconceptions still exist, right? In terms of what we think women are capable of or, or are not capable of you know, when women have been able to participate in some of these events, right? Like, you know, we may have talked about like ski jumping, um, you know, they haven't, it was only in 2014 Olympics that women were able to ski jump um, because they thought that their uterus uterus would burst when they landed. I still don't understand how that's a real thing. I don't, under, I don't either. Well, that's the thing, right? And I think it's, you know, on the one hand, it feels like we've come so far, especially, you know, since Title IX, and there's been so much like incredible stuff that women have done and women athletes have done. And yet, really, like Title IX was only 50 years ago, right? Like, it's a really short period of time in which we're evaluating a lot of this stuff. And yet, we kind of ex also expect women to be on the same level as men by this point, when men have had, you know, centuries to really develop the, you know, the field of their sports to, do, you know, develop as athletes and, and have all that sort of support and investment behind them. Um, so th those were kind of things that really, you know, shocked me, but also not. <laughs> Hey everybody, this episode is brought to you by Sky, a super fun and interesting apparel brand that I have grown to love. They were formed back in 2013 by a former windsurfer, Lars Peterson, who wanted to bring fun and just an exciting attitude to the apparel brand while also having the best and highest quality stuff out there. And that's exactly what this brand has been able to do, has unbelievably high quality gear that is just fantastic, but in a way that doesn't take itself too seriously and is fun and really interesting looking. In addition to that, their whole process is about supporting sub-elite athletes, and that's exactly why they wanted to reach out to the Rambling Runner podcast to work with all of you, because that's exactly who they're looking to, to, to work with, basically. And for them, they call them the everyday heroes, right? The people who are juggling work, friends, family, and their athletics, all the stuff that we do on a daily basis, and that's exactly why Safe Guy was created. Like I said before, go check them out at sayskyus. That's S-A-Y-S-K-Y, sayskyus. 
to see their really interesting, just the, the their color choices, their design elements combined with really durable attire. And not only that, if you use code RR15, you can also save 15% on your order. That's RR15 to save 15% on your order today at sayskye.us. Right. And, and I think part of that, that goes, part of it that goes along with it too, which is not certainly the focus of your book, but from a rationalization standpoint, you get some of the, you get into some of the rationalizations that people use to defend either prior positions or positions that, that used to hold sway, you know, as you dive into the history and oftentimes it can just be like this, like this, this roving, these, um, these roving like answers that, that really depend on like the, the kind of question they're being, someone's being asked. Right. And I think just some of the, some of the things that like, come to the top of my head are like, all right, what's the point of sport? Right. Oftentimes people give very holistic answers, but I guess good for, you know, yep. someone's character, you know, for someone's character, right. Building toughness, you know, learning how to learn kind of answers. Right. And, and be those sort of things like, okay, well, like those aren't dependent on ability nor gender or sex. Right. Those are just like, Hey, you're, you're you might be a better person if you do sort of thing, this sort of thing. Right. Kind of like if you do a musical instrument, you might hear the same yep. sort of sort of answers right but then it's like all right well what kind of sports do you want to watch like i only want to watch the pros well except for college sports well then well then also also high school sports right high school sports can be really popular as well right so then you get like all right well do you watch men and women and like then you have this disparity with like some of the viewership numbers and then also like you mentioned with history like some of that depends on like our what has just been the history of people watching these things like and you've seen even now recently like women's softballs pulling in yeah. pretty big numbers on espn Right? Yeah. We've seen WNBA numbers go way up this year. I think it was up 49% in viewership and things like that. So it's also like, all right, you also have to build a legacy of, of watching some of these things. But oftentimes the answer is like, why don't we do X, Y, Z? It kind of, it, it, they're, they're so shifting. Yeah. And it's hard to like nail people down to something like, all right, this is the issue and here's how we can address it. So that's not a question. I just wanted to say that. So moving on. <gasps> you know, the... The NCAA model mm -hmm. that Title IX addressed, I think, again, we can talk about problems with the NCAA and we can do that all day long. I do do want to say before we get into it, like the NCAA, the college, the, the American the American college sports system, I would say, and I'd love to hear your opinion, is arguably, I would say inarguably, like the best system for women's sports currently in the world, right? Like women's sports in America at those ages is far more advanced than most most countries in the world, in part because of Title IX mm -hmm. and just the idea of college sports, where most most countries don't have college sports, right? College and sports are separate. Yep. Yeah. No, definitely. I mean, it creates this pipeline, right, where girls and women can continue to play sports at a pretty high, I mean, at an extremely high level, frankly, and it continues to create those opportunities, right? To play, to train, to get better, to, but, you know, we also need something at the other end of that, right? And to oh, yeah. funnel them into, should, I mean, should they choose, right? Like not everyone's gonna wanna continue playing pro, but, but those opportunities need to be there. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are a number, like you said, there's a number of criticisms one can talk about with the, double, with the NCAA for sure. But I think just as a whole, in creating those opportunities, it has been key. Um, there are still some disparities, right, in terms of the number of, you know, women athletes as well as scholarship distribution and all of that, which I think needs to be worked on for sure. But, but you know, just in terms of creating those those opportunities for people to play sports, has been you know phenomenal. 
Yeah. And the reason I bring that up, because I want to talk about the, how we get into the research of this, mm-hmm. right? So like, if you set that, set that forward, like, all right, the NCAA has been on, on the whole, great for women's sports, right? In terms of access, right? The, NCAA, the, the college athletic system, yep. right? Is great for women's sports. So with that being the bedrock of like, all right, well then who does the research? Oftentimes this research is done on college campuses, right? Yeah. That's where a lot of research labs are done. You know, a lot of the research that you, you know, as you mentioned, you have footnote like every page of this book. Like a lot of these footnotes are related to college related studies, college labs. So if these same colleges are the mm-hmm. bedrock of women's sports and they're the ones doing the research, mm-hmm. what is stopping that interconnectivity from flourishing? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a big thing is probably department can be department priorities and then funding for that research, right? Because scientific research is not inexpensive, right? Like it's very expensive. And so it often relies on grants and all of that. And so, you know, I've heard from researchers that they've applied for grants and, or, you know, talk to their department chairs or whoever, and they're like, uh, uh, not so interested you know, or like that they don't see the need for it, right? Or they don't understand why we do need to do these studies in women as much. And so if you can't get the money, right, you can't do the research. So I think that's a big piece of it. Um, and, then, and then I think another piece of it is um, actually accessibility to the student athletes. So, so at the conference last week, someone was talking about how coaches won't always let their athletes participate in studies like this. So it, it, it depends in part on, you know, say like the exor- uh, the sports science or the exercise physiology department, having some sort of relationship with the athletics department and the teams. And then depending on those coaches and depending on those, you know, the athletic directors or whatnot and their buy-in, they may or may not let their athletes participate because for fear of it's going to, you know, mess up their training, mess up their season, whatever it is, right? Um I actually talked to a different researcher who said, you know, who was on a college campus and doing these running studies. And it turned out she couldn't do the studies in the women because they were, you know, all cross country track athletes who weren't available. But because that school didn't have a men's team, she had access to all of these like, you know, high quality like men runners. And so she ended up doing the study there because they could participate. So I think that, you know, there are a lot of like, is a lot of nuance, right, in this, um, that I think creates barriers. So it's not always just as simple as saying, we just need to do more research and, you know, the scientists need to do it. Um, But there are constraints to them. All right. And I think an interesting point here too, is like, you're talking about how you're getting into the weeds with this sort of thing. And like, you know, 99.9% of even the public that cares about this topic isn't going to have that kind of information, right? Isn't going to know that offhand, aren't going to have these kind of conversations. So for even the people who are genuinely interested in helping, you know, improve female athletes, please improve female athletics and to do so in a, in a proactive way that's based in scientific research, that can still be a pretty big hurdle to be like, all right, well, what research are I looking at? Which research do I need to you know, address? And all of that sort of thing, in part because like we mentioned before, like, a lot of this stuff isn't black and white in terms of the things that are decided, right? Like in terms of like a study comes out, what does this mean? Yep. Right. We give like the chocolate chocolate example, right? Like is, is chocolate good or bad? I don't know, man. It depends what study you're looking at, right? So 
from an accessibility standpoint, what are the hurdles between high quality research that's done and then getting that research to the athletes and or decision makers in the sport, whether that's athletes, coaches or whoever, to help elevate certain topics that, you know, so basically make sure that that research doesn't go to waste or gets ignored by the people it could positively benefit. For sure. I mean, I'll use the example of, say, like menstrual cycle studies, because that's so hip and popular right now. Um, but when you think about high quality research in that realm, a lot of it depends on really how the researchers are tracking and categorizing um, what menstrual cycle phase someone is in, right? So I think like, you know, 10, 20 years ago, back in the day, they would often just, re you know, rely on self-report maybe, right? Like, um, and so you want to think of like researchers need to think about like how precise they're being. So like, are you relying just on people self-reporting where they are in their cycle, which doesn't actually really tell you anything about like their actual hormone levels, right? Or, you know, whether or not there's any other abnormalities in their cycle. Are they doing things like blood tests, like beforehand, before the study actually starts to make sure that they have a regular cycle? Um, I'm assuming, you know, the study is on folks who, you know, aren't taking hormonal contraceptives or anything like that, right? But, you know, do they check that they have a regular cycle before then? And then as the study goes on, like, how are they checking? Are they using blood draws at certain points? So so again, you can verify what actual stage someone is in. Um, because you have so many different people now doing these studies. And, the, you know, the methodology that they're using isn't always standardized across that. It then makes it hard to compare results across studies. So like it, you can't really compare someone, you know, a study that's saying like, oh, people just self-reported versus another study in which they're doing like all of these, you know, these series of blood draws to actually verify hormonal status and all of that. It makes it hard, right, to draw the actual conclusion. So that's, you know, one example of like, I think what we mean by quality in this area. And then it is such a challenge, I think. I think, honestly, the biggest challenge is that translational piece, right? Like, how do you make sense of all of these studies that are going on and coming out um, to someone who is either a coach or the athlete or the, you know, just a normal person who is curious about this? And I think, you know, it's in part that there is no real translational pipeline. So if you think about with coaching, there's no standardization, right? Or like requirements necessary. Um, so there's no like natural way to kind of pipe that information in to the coaches who might actually need or use or want this information, right? Um, and so that makes it hard then to get it down to the athletes and to actually make it on a practical level. But then like we were talking about before, there's all of the kind of social media influencers and like TikTokers or whoever who will like pull again, these like one off studies who, you know, not to disparage them, right? Like, I don't know what their, their background is in this. Like maybe they are like, you know, PhDs or whoever. Um, but they're taking that information and, tra and translating that into like a 10 minute, 10 second video, right? And that's like really quippy and, you know, has one quick takeaway. Um, and so I think that that piece of it is something that I know for myself as a journalist, like I really struggle with and I'm trying to figure out like how to make that better. Like 
how to help improve that. And I know that that's also something that's on the mind of a lot of the researchers because like they don't want their research to kind of languish, you know, behind the academic firewall. Um, They want people to use it and they, you know, they see so much benefit, you know, that this could serve um, with coaches, with athletes and and whoever. Um, And just figuring out how to make those connections, I think, is the big piece of it. Yeah, as you're talking, I couldn't help but remember like this with this funny like ten ten like like ten second video that I saw, and it was like a great like like synopsis of exactly what you said. It was just, like this hipster guy he got like the podcast stuff, like exactly my setup. He's got the headphones on, he's got the mic in front of him with a computer, and he's like, "Well, there's this really interesting study out of Finland, and um, I'll tell you, it's really interesting because it basically says you know that we're all doing everything wrong." <laughs> It's like, like, obviously it's a joke, but like you hear that sort of thing all the time, right? Like, all the time. Finland, is, for some reason, they're all Scandinavian countries, right? It's like, and then like, here, here, here's like the little thing, and then they move on. It's like, well, it's not like the 10 seconds between like songs on pop radio. This needs to be a little bit more long, long form than this. Yeah. So now with that idea of like, all right, we need to get this out to the masses again, as you described in this book. And this is why it's the context here is so fascinating. Like it's not as simple as that either because some of these studies just aren't that great yep. going back in history, like the underrepresentation or complete lack of representation of women's athletes in there. So instead of diving into the history, you do it really well. We're not going to do like a two minute, like history breakdown of all the sciences and all the sports, but as you're going around, you know, with this book and you're having proactive conversations with people in the field or, or people are coming to you and expressing their views, how do you feel like things are moving um, around these kinds of topics? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is a really exciting time, um, in part because of what you were saying before about this, you know, finally, it seems like there's a lot more interest in women's sports and like people are watching the, the you know, the numbers are all going up everywhere. And I think like people recognize like, this is an important area that we need to pay attention to, you know, so I mean, just looking at it from like a women's sports perspective, like from the pro sports perspective, if we actually want to grow this arena, like you got to take care, you have to take care of the athletes, right? You need better research to support them. You need more resources to support them. Um, So it's, so I think that that's building a lot of momentum in people actually paying attention to these issues and recognizing that, you know, A, we don't know a lot and B, we need to know a lot more and C, I want information now, right? Um, so I think that's super exciting and you see it in a lot of interest in researchers who are starting to move in towards this field. And, you know, I guess not surprisingly, a lot of those researchers are women too. Um, and I think that as they start to, and they are, right, like getting up into these leadership positions, those priorities that we were talking about before as being a barrier starts to change. They become the ones who are starting, you know, setting more of the priorities of the department, of the research lab or whatever it is, um, and helping to continue to drive that forward. So I think like we're at the, it feels like at least we're at the, this cusp of something really exciting Hey folks, let's talk about vacation races. So Vacation Races hosts half marathons, ultra marathons, and trail running festivals at national parks around the country in week-long running adventures all around the world. These global adventures offer daily 7 to 12k trail runs in the morning and afternoon activities that include high like 
high adventure things like glacier treks, zip lining, whitewater rafting, or cultural activities like wine tasting, falconry, his, uh, historic tours, cooking classes, just these things, they offer just such a wide range of things. If you're worried about pace, don't be. They require runners to maintain around a 20-minute mile pace. So as long as, you can, as long as you're basically moving with purpose, you're going to be just fine. These adventures are all all-inclusive, which means hotels, in-country transportation, meals, drinks, activities, and swag are all covered in the trip. And they just announced their full 2024 calendar which you're going to want to check out. Again, I know we just started 2023, but you got to plan these trips way in advance, and that's exactly what they're trying to do. They have 11 different destinations. Examples are like Alaska, Costa Rica, Croatia, Ecuador, Iceland, Ireland, Japan, New Zealand, Patagonia. So many. It really is remarkable. You can go check them out at vacationraces.com. New customers can use Rambling 200 for $200 off any global adventure trip that is not currently sold out. Also, you can use code RAMBLING15 for 15% off any of the half marathons or ultra marathon adventures that are not currently sold out. So remember, it's code RAMBLING200 for the global adventures and RAMBLING15 for 15% off the half marathon or ultra marathons. Yeah, because I feel like on some level, the time inertia of it all has a chance to make this like really possible, right? Like you mentioned, Total Nine happened 50 years ago and just the, the downstream effects of that, right? The people who are getting into leader pos- leadership positions have been mm-hmm. affected by Title Nine. Maybe they were college athletes and then you can kind of, you know, continue that momentum as the people who've been possibly affected by women's sports, whether they're male or female, can then be the decision makers to move this forward. Obviously, that doesn't happen on its own necessarily. It maybe is more likely to happen in that situation, but part of that is also for driving awareness and, and holding people accountable for their decisions that will affect other people. So with that being the case, what are the things that either, who are the people, I guess, whether they're you know, media members, like a journalist, I say media, but that's not true. Like a journalist like yourself, um, and people like in you know your peers or who are the people that should be holding whether it's scientists or the leagues or the coaches accountable for expanding our knowledge base on these topics yeah i mean i do hope right like it's in part journalists who are continuing to push this area right and kind of continuing to write about it and raise awareness and share what we do know and what we are learning but in terms of just holding folks accountable like i do think a large part of it comes down to like athletes themselves and parent you know and then for younger athletes parents too um because you're (laughs) that's you're the person right like who's being affected here um and i think it kind of it stinks right that athletes have to continue to advocate for themselves in in this way like right that it's not just taken as a given that your coach or your national governing body or whoever is going to take care of you but um but we have seen so much advocacy on the front you know on the part of athletes to really push a lot of this change which i think is phenomenal right and and really amazing um and i think Athletes also play a really big role in helping to define what it is that those scientists and researchers are actually going to study. Because I think, again, historically, it's always been like, 
you know, someone in the lab with their lab coat on being like, I'm really interested in this, like this one molecule, you know, it's like, I want to study this. But then is that actually an area of study that the athletes themselves care about and want to know more about? And that can actually make a difference, right, for them on the playing field or, you know, on the track or wherever they are, right? Um, so that's that's something that I think is really interesting. And I, I think we're starting to see a little bit more incorporating incorporation of that like scientists actually collaborating with athletes and the people you know at the end right who this affects to understand like what their priorities are to help then define their research agenda and when it comes to research on female athletes again i don't think you can rank like top it's so hard to like rank topics right depends on like your preconceived notions and like (laughs) what you personally care about and, and all of those things but it seems like one of the pinnacles or primary you know, things to consider, and I know that has been uh, on a lot of people's minds, and you brought it up already a little bit, is just the effects of puberty mm-hmm. in women mm-hmm. in athletic performance and development. And, you know, we've seen this so many times, you you bring it up several times in the book, and, you know, for running fans, you know, the, the Mary Kane example is a great example that you bring up, and I think um, is a great one here, I think it's in chapter five. But yes, talk to me like the, the, the research that's going into yeah. that, because it seems like it's such a critical period for the athletes themselves, and has been shrouded in mystery, seemingly, for either the public at large or the coaches about how best to address this time period with athletes, um, even coaches who are trying to be as well-meaning as possible. Yeah, no, it's... Um, I think, you know, it's important to recognize that, you know, for both boys and girls, right, this is a period of ridiculously tremendous growth, right? It's not just that they're growing in height and all of this. um, But someone was telling me it's like the equivalent, the amount of growth that happens during puberty is like the equivalent of the amount of growth, like in the, you know, in a baby's first like year of life or something like that. Like it is ridiculous, right? The, what is going on in that body. But what happens with girls, and when we think about it within, you know, an athletic context, because girls' bodies are not just like shooting up in height, but they're also changing in shape, right? So like hips are widening, they're getting breasts, they're putting on a little bit more weight, right? Um, it changes how you feel in your body. Whereas in boys, generally, um, it's a little bit more of a stepwise pattern, right? Like it's it kind of goes up a little bit more uh, straight line, if you will. But for girls, like it's very dis- disorienting or it can be really disorienting to not feel the same in your body or your body not respond in the same way um, as it previously did. And I think that that has, that plays a big role in terms of just relationship to sport and physical activity. Um, this then almost desire to kind of push yourself more because like if you're slowing down you're like I'm not training enough so like you push yourself more and it can lead to things like overtraining um because their bodies are changing in such a way like it draws more attention maybe unwanted attention and so like that might also affect like their willingness or desire right to even be physically active but aside from all of that um there, you know, the biggest piece around adolescence is around bone health, right? And so it's like, yes, bones are growing, but boys and girls are, are laying down bone mass at a very different rate. Boys lay down more than girls and girls bone health really is dependent on the menstrual cycle at this point, right? So that's why it's really important that girls menstrual cycles 
you know, A, start and are regular because that regular surge of estrogen helps maintain bone mass, helps, you know, lay down that bone that you really need because you accumulate about 80%, I think it is, of your adult bone mass um, by your like mid-20s or something like that. And everyone has a certain genetic potential for the amount of bone mass that they have. If you don't reach that by that period, like you can't go back and make it up right? Like you just kind of keep what you have. That's why like, you know, we harp so much about menstrual cycle health and, you know, bone health during this period and eating well in particular, because that's very much tied to it. I tell my kids, it's, I was telling them the other day that because they were doing something stupid and, and I was trying to explain like why they shouldn't be like overdoing something. I was like, it's like your body, it's like you're blowing glass, right? And you're in this period of time in which you're this, like the molten glass, you're trying to make it into your, but you haven't crystallized into your adult form yet. And so if you are in this like molten pliable period, right? Like any extra like stress or overuse can, it's like it dents you, right? And it leaves a mark. Um, so that's kind of how I think about it. And that's, that's a why. a great metaphor. That's wonderful. Yeah. They're like, did Your you kids are that? a lot smarter than mine. If I said blowing glass to my kids, they would like start like blowing at the window. Like, it doesn't do anything. What are you talking about? Well, they were totally being smart asses because they're like, so you just poke me now? It's like, is that going to leave a dent? I'm like, shut up. Um, but like the point being that like it's also during this period of time, like in adolescence too, where like that you want to do more, right? Like you're ready to like step up to the next level or you think you are. You want to like run more, lift more, like do um, more, you know, trickier pitches if you're a baseball, if you're a pitcher and softball or baseball, um, all these things which could potentially put extra stress on your body that your body's not quite ready yet to withstand. So I think it's, it's this tricky balance between, you know, Yes, wanting our kids to grow and progress and be healthy, wanting them, you know, to continue to be excited about sports, but almost also kind of reining them in a little bit and and asking them to be patient and be like, yes, you will get there, but just don't overdo it at this moment in in time. Right. And, you know, you bring up the the point that, you know, Mary Kane was like on the verge of having like osteoporosis. Like, yeah, <laughs> you, don't, you don't you don't identify the age, but you know it's implied like late teens, early twenties, which is like a shocking statement to hear. But at the same time, I know for you, like that's not necessarily rare for people who are swimming in those circles. And at the same time, it's like, ooh, like you hear that and you're like, oh my god, we need to like how how do we stop this? And yet, the people who are in positions of of power to you know, do that sort of thing, either don't care or don't know. Yeah. Right. So you have like, whether it's the parents who are like, wait, what? Like, what, what what's going to happen here? Right. Yeah. Or the coaches who are like, yeah, well, you know, we're going for short term gains here. Right. Like you, your chapter five chapter is like called the long game. And I feel like you could like written like every, the name of every chapter could be the long game. Right. Cause it's like, if you only go for the short game here for some of this stuff, the, the deleterious effects of it can be widespread and long lasting, um, whether it's the person's bodies or just for like the sport, the sport in general. Yeah. And I think that that's the tricky part, right? So like in a lot of youth sports coming up, it's mostly parents, right? And volunteers who are coaching and, you know, I'm a, there's no, like we talked about, there's no coaching, like, you know, course or whatever that you have to go through before you start coaching little league or something. 
Um, and parents are just, you know, doing their best and they may or, may or may not know all these things. And then when you get into like more organized sports with coaching, there is such a legacy, right? Of like, this is how we've always done things. Um, and you kind of, you just default to that because especially if you've had success in the past, like, why would you change something? Or like, why would you think to do something different? Um, and I think that, you know, at least for me, like that piece of it, like trying to get some of this information out more to parents and to coaches, especially of younger athletes, I feel like is really important and where we can potentially have more of an impact in the longer term, right? Because if we get this information out and we help set a more solid foundation, maybe hopefully we're like setting them up for longer term athlete development versus just like, I'm really good in eighth grade. Right, exactly. Now, I haven't done a great job in this interview of you know, highlighting the positives, right? So like we're, we're, we were talking a lot about the challenges, right? The things that we would like to, specifically you would like to see different or the things that haven't been great, the challenges in the future, things like that. And, and you highlight many of them throughout the book and they're all vital. With that said, it's not all just like, it's not, it's not all just challenges in this book. You highlight so many people who are doing really interesting and great things and who are, can be, who can be and are examples of positive, um, positive people in this space. So we're not going to go through them chapter and verse. Um, obviously, I'm maybe more predisposed to some of the the endurance figures in this book. Um, but who are you know one or two people who, as you got to know them and put their stories in context here um, within the larger framework, that you found yourself really gravitated to? Yeah, I mean, there are so many. Like you said, like I think my fear was going into writing this book was that I was like, it's all going to be doom and gloom, but like, I definitely <laughs> didn't want it to but be like, that. like I just did for 43 straight minutes, right? I did no. doom and gloom for the whole podcast. I'm like, Not at Oh all. my God, I got to well, get into the positives here. It, but that's the important thing though. It's like, we have to understand what's going on now. Right. And like, how that does, like, we do have to understand the negative impacts of it or potential negative impacts in order to then I think, change hearts and minds, if you will, right, to to move more towards something positive. But I think like, there's a couple, I think um, there's this one organization called Voice in Sport, which I'm not sure if you are familiar with, but they work specifically with younger girls, I think like between like 13 and 23 ish. Um, but it's not only just information for them, but they also do like mentoring sessions with collegiate and pro athletes. Um, so these girls have mentors to look to and to talk to and ask these questions. Because again, I feel like that line of communication is really important to understand people's experiences, to understand, you know, what say someone like a Colleen Quigley might have gone through in the past so that these girls, you know, can see, you know, how something like, I don't know, underfueling could affect you, right? Or like some mental health issue could affect you. But not only that, but they also will connect girls with, you know, specialists too. So like sports dietitians or sports psychologists or other folks in the field that work specifically with this population. And I think that, again, that's a piece that's missing is because it's hard to find resources and experts who work in this field, who understand working with young female athletes. So I think that's a really interesting organization. Um, I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't also mention uh, Dr. Kate Ackerman up at Boston Children's Hospital, who, you know, 
has spearheaded this incredible program up in Boston that, again, works very interdisciplinary and holistically with their athletes. So it's not just, you know, she's a sports uh, sports doc. So it's not just like they go see her and then like everyone is working in silos, but like they all come together and kind of work on cases together. But she's also created this amazing thing with the Female Athlete Conference to bring these researchers together too, to foster more collaboration. And then the money that they raise from that goes back into more funding more female athlete research. Um, so those are the two that kind of come to mind. I love the idea of doing this holistically and making sure people are talking to each other about the research and connecting on behalf of the patient and or athlete. You know, I think Leah Fallon is a great example yeah. that you put in the book about this exact the exact problem with this, where if we're too siloed, um, how things can just get lost in translation or people might not know. And I think a lot of people can have that that similar experience. Like you'll see doctor, like you can tell they're just not quite yeah. getting it, especially runners. Right. I always tell runners like, hey, if you go see a PT, make sure they're a runner. Or at least they work with runners. Like that is their thing, right? They know what a workout means, right? Yep. They know what like tempo long run is. And they also can identify certain things because that's their thing. It's like that same sort of idea here, right? They're like being able to understand this holistically and how some of the pieces fit or don't fit or more like a mosaic, right? Which pieces <laughs> need to stay in the pile or which pieces are in the pile that need to be thrown thrown into the picture? Yeah, yeah. And which pieces like might look broken, but fit in and make a gorgeous picture in the end. There you go. Christine, thank you so much for putting this book out in the world. Up to speed, the groundbreaking science of women athletes. If you want to learn more about you, I know you do. Your newsletter is one that I always look forward to. So if people want to learn more about you, where should they go? Um, so on social media, I'm at at CYU888, um, three eights <laughs> on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, I have a Substack. Um I can't remember what it is, but I will tell Matt and he can put it in the show notes. Sure thing. I, I subscribe. It'll be pretty easy for me to find. But yes, thank you so much for having me. And I should say the podcast that is going to be running after yours. So this is going to come out on Friday, the 23rd, June 23rd. Yeah. Um, the one coming out on Monday is with Natalie Mitchell, oh, which fun. I bring up because one of the videos we actually one of the things we talked about on the pod last night when we recorded it was her experience at Boston and I was like going back and doing my research for that and I'm like oh look at this video from Boston I know I'd already I'd already liked on social media and comment or whatever but I'm just going back and looking at things and I'm like oh Christine you shot this video how funny like I'm talking to her tomorrow this is great yes Natalie's the best she's super fun and I'm glad I had a little time to spend with her so great. I, lo I love when I see like people like, I didn't know these two people knew each other. I'm like, now they're like, <laughs> this is so funny. Like, Someone would be like, oh, Christine, you shot this. Like, who's that? Like, is that, this is a friend of Natalie's. Like, no, she's like one of the best female authors in the country and on, on athletics. This is great. How, what a random, what a random video. <laughs> Amazing. All right, Christine, thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you, Matt.